Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But now I want to talk about something that our premier signaled uh, a few weeks ago about the RCMP and whether or not BC should be moving towards a municipal police, municipal, not, excuse me, provincial police force. There's been so much about policing. I'm talking municipal police in Surrey, SPS and, and the Surrey RCMP. But this is a pivot beyond that. And why our Solicitor General, our Public Safety Minister, had taken his time in the due diligence of figuring out what might be best for this province, not just in Surrey, but across B.C. And this fall, the federal government plans to table a quote-unquote what-we-heard report on the discussions with provinces, municipalities, and First Nations on RCMP services and, and how to improve them. And, and perhaps a first step, according to uh, some, and, and in particular, federal public safety minister, ministry officials on considering the future of contract policing in our country and what that might mean. So let's unpack this with somebody who uh, is, is very informed on the subject. Rob Gordon, good friend of the show, the professor of criminology at SFU, joins us on the line. Thank you for being with us, Rob. Happy to be with you, Jody. A very complex conversation, and I'm sure our phone lines will uh, light up when we open up to, to callers in, this, in the next segment. But I want to get your take on what we've seen unfold with regard to contract policing in Canada and how you see it unfolding here, particularly in B.C., given the drama around the Surrey Police Services versus Surrey RCMP and what uh, Mike Farnworth, our Solicitor General, has said on the subject. Um, what are you seeing happen here? Well, uh, first of all, we should be careful not to allow the Surrey issue to contaminate the discussion. Uh, I mean, in many respects, that's been um, that's been a terrible experience and a good example of why policing policy um, and politics should not be mixing. Uh, mm. Absolutely dreadful. But um, that's set aside for the minute. Uh, there, what's happening nationally? and this is important from the point of view of the longevity of the RCMP, is, of course, a federal interest in making changes based upon, in part, based upon the findings of the Nova Scotia Commission of Inquiry uh, into, into the mass killing in, in that province. Now, I, I'm uh, not going to go and, and try and summarize that, but it, no. it's uh, clearly... Uh, having a major impact. And if you read the report, um, what happened there was appalling. And it's not just um, the findings of that commission, uh, but also the fact that it's, even though you say, oh, it's just Nova Scotia, it's the other side of the country, um, the structure and organization of policing in Nova Scotia is not that dissimilar from BC. So we could have a repeat, repeat performance uh, of this problem, as we did uh, way back when uh, Wally Opal uh, did a commission, ran a commission of inquiry 
into um, uh, the, the killings at the uh, pig farm in Coquitlam. Um, mm-hmm. and the, it, it, scary similarities between those two things. So you've got that happening at the federal level. A lot of uh, concern about whether or not uh, the RCMP is overstretching, um, trying to be too many things to too many people. Uh, that's one. And the other thing we've got happening is uh, the all-party commission of inquiry, um, which was uh, which handed down a report about a year ago now, uh, and that recommended that we recreate a provincial police service um, for BC and work out ways of regionalizing uh, police services within uh, a, a provincial model. Um, that's an excellent report and well worth a read if people are interested in policing and, and the future of policing in the province uh, and, and are uh, eager to find out more about it. It is online, uh, as indeed is Nova Scotia Commission report. So you've got those two forces operating. Um, it, it's not what I would call critical mass because one of the things that um, happens with policing is that we think we're heading down a reform path only to run into an enormous blockade uh, because there are a variety of forces massed against change. Uh, The RCMP is itself a body that's massed against change. Uh, And now that's unionized, and so you have a union voice uh, joining in the chorus. Uh, So those two things are um, at play um, and could herald... Uh, some major changes, uh, particularly in BC. We're with Professor Rob Gordon, a Professor of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. And Professor, one of the pieces to this is is what you just said with the with regard to the roadblock. I mean, the 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 unnerved nature of change for so many, and when public safety is is at the root of it. When we look at BC having the largest complement of RCMP officers in Canada, about 6,800 of the nearly 20,000 officers in the force overall, and having to look at those you know, detachments, uh, some of them fairly significant, Burnaby and Richmond come to mind, uh, and, and across the province, major crime, sexual exploitation of children, and, and highway policing being a big part of that. If there is that pushback toward change, do, public public concern might be around how things transition, if it is to transition to a, a provincial police force. What does that even begin to look like? It, it feels like a bumpy road and we're not even on it yet. <laughs> yeah, you need a steamroller to run across it to flatten the stuff, grader to flatten yeah. the, the surface. But, um, I mean, it, it's not... It's not something that uh, we should find impossible. I mean, far from it. Um, people of goodwill uh, can figure this out. Policymakers can figure this out. I mean, I, I could I could sit down with a pencil and paper. I said arrogantly, um, and and do this in a week. Uh, you, but it requires cooperation from different. Um, from different bodies, and there are too many, or there are a large number of interests at stake. Um, the driving force is going to be the federal government's decision, and I'm not passing the buck. 
but they are the they are the masters of the RCMP. That in itself is a problem, but they are the masters of the RCMP, um, and they will dictate uh, what happens with that particular particular police, police service. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I got a couple dogs in the background here. I'm really glad that they didn't hear that because they would have lit up as well. It happens. That's uh, where we're at. Radio is imperfect. So you're, I, I like you even more, Professor, because you have dogs. So continue <laughs> what you were saying. Yeah. So these are, um, uh, you know, these, these are problematic issues because of the barriers. Um, and a lot of the barriers are not exactly rational. I mean, I've had a lot of feedback from people on the Surrey issue, for example, um, uh, pointing to the fact that there are families and the well-being of families at stake. And a lot of the people I discover who are commenting adversely on the departure of the RCMP are people who have a vested interest. Um, They are family members of RCMP members uh, in in Surrey. Um, This will repeat itself over and over again. It's actually why I see the Surrey episode as being a very interesting dress rehearsal for a much larger event. Um, And I'm sure that uh, Mike Farnworth has been, (laughs) in the end, grateful um, so he can see where the problems lie, uh, what kind of reaction you're likely to get if, in fact, we do move, as this all-party committee has recommended, we do move to a, a single police service, and I emphasize service, not force, Great. police service uh, for the province of British Columbia. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, continuing our discussion with Professor Rob Gordon, uh, Professor of Criminology at Simon, Fra- Simon Fraser University. Um, and. Thank you for staying just a little longer with me, Professor, because I wanted to get into the dollars and cents of this. The statistics show that from 2012 to 2021, police costs for the 20 largest cities in B.C. jumped 50, 50 percent, a total of 413 million. And the increases ranged from a high of 78 percent, that in Chilliwack and Richmond, to a low of 31 percent in Maple Ridge. All these three communities policed by the RCMP. So people concerned that the RCMP is a, is a money saver for the province um, need to really crunch the numbers here. What can you tell us in your purview on that? Uh, well, most certainly um, the federal subsidies um, that are paid to municipalities and indeed the province for um, the use of the RCMP is extremely, uh, extremely important in budgeting for policing but you know that's always been precarious Mm -hmm. um and i don't think that should be the basis for deciding on the future of policing in the province and certainly cost is important um but i mean you can't turn your back on that fact but you cannot allow costs alone to drive what is in fact uh, an important social policy issue Uh, That may seem naive, but uh, I I do believe that we've got to be very careful because crafty politicians will try to turn uh, public opinion on the basis of the costs of any kind of change. Any reform is going to cost money. Um, So somebody somewhere has to pay, and it's going to be me as a taxpayer. 
Um, but all the same, uh, if the reasoning, I think, is laid out carefully enough and people can see the importance of the change, uh, they'll be much more receptive. It, it doesn't help be battering each other as politicians um, uh, over the cost issue when what's important is what is the most effective, uh, most efficient policing system uh, that we can have for the province. And the people power as well, Professor. I mean, that's an issue for the RCMP. Recruitment's a, p- a problem across the board, uh, whether it be oh, yeah. municipal police forces or the RCMP. How do you, how do you address that? Well, that, that is a problem. Uh, but part of the difficulty is people are looking at what's going on with policing. I sincerely believe this. Looking at what's going on with policing and saying, do I want my kids to be uh, choosing uh, this as a career when the future of policing is uh, is unstable in the province. And I think many right. people would say no. The, the uh, you know, go somewhere else, look somewhere else. Um, the most important thing to remember, too, is that what is attractive to police officers, both experienced and newcomers, is uh, that stability and right. the belief that there's going to, they're going to be joining an efficient and effective organization that Long is term. going to be... De- yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I've looked at the way in which recruiting is going on now in other jurisdictions, and that it involves the hiring of experienced police officers as well as neophytes who are going to have to go through a police academy. Right. Um, but obviously what has been of concern um, coming out of the Nova Scotia inquiry is what exactly... Uh, the depot, the, rec- the depot in Regina, are training the police officers to do. Um, and you think about it, it, just step back and look at it. It's absurd uh, trying to uh, produce a police service uh, uh, out of young people who don't have any world experience, or very little world experience, and expect them to go and do a thousand different tasks. Uh, yeah, it, being it, harrowing it tasks at that. Absolutely, yeah. Th- thank you, Professor. I appreciate I, I kept you longer than, than I'd promised, and I really do appreciate your insights. You've educated many of us this morning. Thank you for this. Well, anytime. Just uh, get in touch. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. Glad to have you along. This next conversation is going to be a tough one. Anybody who's ever felt the stress and strain of trying to secure a rental in the Lower Mainland uh, is going to find this triggering, especially those who love where they live, maybe have spent a decade, two, almost three decades living in one spot, loving your community, knowing your neighbors, you know, being a part of it calling it home, and then having it taken from you. This is the story of our next guest. Gary Rodden 
is an evicted New West resident. And I could lay out the story here, but Gary, I'd rather you tell this story and, and let our listeners know what you have been navigating, what you continue to go through, and what you're protesting against. Thank you so much for joining us today on the radio. Hi. Hi. Well, this all began last September when my landlord approached me and some other long-term tenants in my building and asked for a voluntary rent increase. I'm paying about $1,000 a month, and he asked us, me and other long-term tenants to pay an extra couple hundred dollars a month. Some of them agreed to pay it. Some of them did not. I did not agree to pay it. So six months later, I got an eviction notice uh, from the landlord saying that they wanted my apartment for his son. This is, this is the so-called loophole, family use loophole. So I disputed this at the uh, residential tenancy branch, and, I want, and uh, my eviction was canceled because the landlord did not fill out the, uh, the form correctly. So it was a technicality. And then five or six weeks after that, I, I got a second eviction notice. It was the, the same thing, only this time he'd filled out the form correctly. So, again, I disputed it. I disputed it, and I have a hearing set for the end of September. So I need to do a bit of a legal note here. As Heron Property Management that operates Mandalay Terrace said in part, quote, in terms of the claim that our company is using collaborative landlord use evictions to get new tenants and higher rents, we can assure you that that is not our practice and the allegation is unfounded. So that's the official word from the property management. So you're you're battling on a couple of fronts here, if I understand correctly, is you're, you're trying to get support from the province, but had some issues with filing a claim there. Is that right, Gary? Well, I, I won the first, the, the first dispute, and now I have a okay. second dispute. So what, winning the first dispute didn't give you the right to, to maintain your residence. Can you explain it a little bit further? People that haven't had to navigate the system, you're, you're explaining it very well, but just give us a little bit more detail on, on what a second dispute looks like if you've won the first one. Well, the, the first, I won the first dispute on a technicality. The form wasn't filled out correctly, and the and the arbitrator noticed that right away, so he canceled it, the the eviction. Okay. So, so the landlord came back six weeks later with another eviction notice, this time filled out correctly. So now I'm I'm back in in another dispute, which will be in September. Okay, I got you. So we're we're just going around the same carousel a second time because all of the paperwork has been filled out. Uh, properly. Yes. What what of other people in your building, other people on this property that are are getting similar notices? How are they managing that? Are they are they just taking it and saying, "Well, we got to move," or are they are they fighting back as well? I understand there's a bit of a protest. Well, there's been three or four cases of similar to this over the last two or three years. All all those all those people did not dispute it at the RTB. They just moved out. I was the first one to dispute it, but. It, right. Tenants in this building say this is not the first time this has happened. It's happened three or four other times. Always with the with the reason being that a family member was going to move in. Yes, and we have okay. I, we have witnesses to say that this is not true. So who ends up moving in? Do they do a big renovation, or do they just put up put put some paint on and change the flooring, and then move more people in at a higher rent? Yes. I'm paying about $1,000 a month. Uh, last year, they were renting apartments for 1700 In February this year, they were renting apartments for 2200 
So what they do is they they do a, a renovation of, of the bill, of the apartment. They put in new flooring, paint the walls, put in new appliances, and then they double the rent. Right. So given the the rental market, because the argument could be that these people um, own this property and their goal is to make money. And at a time, $1,000 was a lot. Um, now it's not a lot because we're in an affordability crisis. What do you say to people who, who believe that um, the landlords have a right to raise the rent? Well, yeah, but tenants have a, need a place to live. And a Correct. lot of, especially older tenants, cannot afford $2,000 a month. I agree with you. So where does the line get drawn there? That's the discussion that I think we're going to have here on the radio in the next segment to see what, where, where, that, where the fairness is on that. Because certainly you've lived in your home for, what, 27 years now, Gary? Yes. That's yes. your home. I mean, that's, and that's your community. Yes. And where would you go? Where would you go? Well, there, there's nowhere to go because the, rent, the rental vacancy rate in Metro Vancouver is almost zero and rents are skyrocketing. Yeah. So there is nowhere to go, which is why, one reason why I'm fighting this. Of course. Of course. I just wanted to make sure that our listener catches up with, with what your story is like. Having the backstory in front of me, make, I, have, I have that keen perspective here. So you're calling on the B.C. government to do what? Well, we want uh, several things from the, from the B.C. government. We want changes to the Residential Tenancy Act. We want a ban on no-fault evictions. 85% of evictions in B.C. are no-fault. B.C. is the evictions capital of Canada, and 85% of these evictions are no fault. In other words, the tenant has not done anything wrong. So we want that eliminated. We want no-fault evictions banned. And we also want the, to eliminate the family use loophole. This is the loophole that the landlords are able to use to, to evict uh, ten, long-term tenants and bring in uh, new tenants at, at a much higher uh, rate. Mm-hmm. So we want that evicted. So- we want that eliminated. And we, we think it's... I, I find, I, sorry, I find it just stunning that 85% of evictions are no-fault evictions in BC and that we lead that stat across the country. That is an astounding statistic. We have the highest eviction rate in Canada. The, Van, the Vancouver province did a, did a store, front-page story in, in, a couple months ago in their Sunday edition. And they did a long, a long story about uh, the evictions in B.C. being the highest in Canada and 85% of them being uh, no fault. This was based on a study done by, done by UBC. They studied the evictions in uh, B.C. between 2016 and 2021, and they found that 85% of the evictions were no fault. Wow. So how many units are in the building that you currently live in that you're fighting to stay in after uh, 27 years and, and have been handed the uh, multiple eviction notices? How many, how many tenants are in the building overall? There are 57 units in the building and 42 of them are one bedroom units. So this okay. is, this is one, one of the arguments that I, would, that I would make at the dispute panel. There are 42 uh, one-bedroom apartments in this building. So why does he have to evict anybody? All he has to do is wait for somebody to move out because people move in and out of the building on a regular basis. So why does he have to evict anybody? The person who lives in the, lives in the apartment next door to me moved out at the end of April, and someone new moved in at the beginning of May. So there was an apartment there. Why didn't he take that apartment? 
for for his family member yeah. we're with gary rodden a, a, a new west resident 27 years living in his apartment has been served with eviction notice uh, by his landlord that the reason given from the landlord is they would like to move a family member into the unit uh, and and Gary, you're fighting it. You're you're asking for the BC government to ban no fault evictions and and pointing to the eviction rates in BC being at 85 percent, uh, the the highest in Canada. Yes, uh, we uh, we, it, we think my my eviction is a rent eviction. Not a, they're not using this for for the landlord's son. This is a rent eviction in our opinion, because this has right. been done before in this building. And Heron Property Management, which operates your building, says that they are not um, using evictions to get new tenants and higher rents. Uh, they are, they are, they've put out a statement saying that these allegations are being made are unfounded. And yet you're so this is going to be something that does play out in court. You said you're going your next hearing is in September. Yes, September 25th. Well, Gary, I, I'm so sorry to hear of the stress that you are under and how difficult these times are for so many across the region. I think you you represent one of, of many people living in this stress, stressful situation. We appreciate you sharing your story with us today. And and do circle back and, and keep us posted on, on what the next steps bring for you, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. And... Uh, one of my very favorite all-time guests is going to be with us here for the next 30 minutes. One of the reasons I have such great respect and admiration for uh, Professor Timothy Caulfield is his fearlessness in calling out the disinformation and misinformation. On many fronts, he is a professor, as mentioned, and research director at the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. And today, with this author, speaker, TV host, regular guest on Steel and Vance, regular guest here on CKNW, uh, one of the best follows on Twitter, by the way, at Caulfield Tim. Uh, the articles put up are just fascinating to read and also very much um, data confirmed, data driven, and and informative in that most scientific sense. But today we're talking about the grift involved with supplements and anti anti aging. Uh, oh, if you take this one pill, everything's going to be better for the. Uh, you're going to live to be a whatever the prom promise is. We're going to call it out here with Professor Timothy Caulfield. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Jody. Let's begin with somebody who uh, is a, a trigger point, a flash warning. I've got a couple of clips here of uh, now disgraced podcaster and, and, and showman, snake oil salesman, Alex Jones. Uh, here he is talking about, this one really bothers me as I went through two and a half years of fertility treatment to become a mother. This supplement saves fertility. We are being poisoned. Our fertility is being targeted and it's dropping across the Western world. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthroplex is the newest edition in InfoWorksLife.com. Inflomax, saving fertility. What is this? It's so, it's, it's really maddening. And I'll tell you, sup, the supplement industry is absolutely massive it's absolutely massive and and that's interesting on a number of fronts but particularly because often people that are taking supplements or drawn to supplements are skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry but of course two fa point really important points here 
the supplement industry is also a massive profit-driven industry. And, and Jody, it's often owned by the pharmaceutical industry. So you're not escaping the, the reach of the pharmaceutical industry by buying these supplements. In addition to that, of course, of course, of course, and the main point here is there is usually very little evidence, often no evidence, to support the claims that are being made. Um, and supplements are often harmful. You can have adverse reactions to them. And finally, and I think this is a fact that isn't raised enough, pharmaceutical, the supplements often don't even contain what is on the label. A very recent study that was published in JAMA, for example, looked at dozens, dozens of supplements and found, listen to this, Jody, 40% of the, of the tested supplements didn't contain a detectable amount of the ingredient on the label. 40%. Now, this study comes to the United States. Um, and, but we have a relatively similar, similar regulatory framework here in, here in Canada. There have been other studies that have found also contamination problems in, uh, here in Canada. So, yeah, so much wrong with the supplement in- industry. Where do we start? And, and we lean into it because, you know, Alex Jones on InfoWars had how many millions, tens of millions of people tuning in and, and believing that he had a better idea of, of what would and would not work. There's no supplement that saves fertility. There's no ancients that give you better bones. And then you have, you know, RFK Jr. running for president talking about uh, all of the things that have given him abs, all of the supplements that he takes in order to be, um, you know, far more fit than his age and and leaning into the anti-community, the anti, like you said, anti-science, yet very much into the supplements. How many people who are anti-vaxxers also take a testosterone booster pill? Yeah, it's it is a fascinating paradox, right? I have this I have this image that I I created that I put up where you know on the one hand you have people taking supplements, right? Which again, highly unregulated, very little evidence to to show they the supplements work often contaminated. And that harm thing is important too. You know, one of the leading causes of kidney kidney failure, and again, backed up by research uh, in emergency rooms is supplements, right? So you have not regulated, little evidence to support. These same individuals, you know, are often refusing to take vaccines. We have this highly regulated, whole bunch of research to support, um, you know, good independent um, investigation of, of efficacy and, and harm. Uh, they reject that paradigm, but accept the supplement paradigm. It's, it's you know, the, the depth of the irony is hard to parse. And, and part of it, of course, Jody, and we've talked about this before, is, is increasingly the entire wellness industry is more about identity. It's more about ideology. It's more about, you know, your team and group signaling and supplements, as highlighted by that Alex Jones clip, has become part of that story, right? It's become yeah. part of how you represent yourself to the universe. You know, and just so people, because someone might fill up my inbox saying that I'm just picking on Alex Jones. I'm not. There are lots of uh, examples. Here's Dr. Dave's best. Have a listen to this. This is a must for everybody. Okay. Instant Einstein. Uh, students <laughs> who are taking exams can use Instant Einstein. Uh-huh. Older folks whose memory is flagging a little bit yeah. can use Instant Einstein. You want to be on your toes. You want to be able to learn new things and remember them. This is the stuff. 
89% of dietary supplement labels did not accurately declare the ingredients found in the products. I'm looking at the jamanetwork.com uh, posting that you put up on your Twitter today. I find it fascinating to read the research behind these. You know, only one in five ingredients actually in it that were listed on the bottle. What the heck's an instant Einstein? Yeah, and these these claims are often, you know, you know, off the charts, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're going you're gonna to live to 180. Uh, it's going to help with your fertility. It's going to help with your cognition. And, and it's often aimed at, at real serious issues that we're struggling with as a society uh, as, as, a, as a quick fix. Now, Jody, it's really important to recognize here, you know, if your science-informed clinician, you know, physician tells you that you have uh, a deficiency and you need a clinical-grade uh, supplement, that's very different. And, and there's a lot of interesting research going on around things like vitamin D, for example, and pregnant women have to take yeah. certain kinds of supplements. So, you know, we have to be careful that, you know, we know the kinds of stuff. We're talking about the massive supplement industry here, the wellness yes. industry that's, that's marketing all this, this nonsense. So well, we're with Professor Timothy Caulfield, the research director of Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta, an author, a speaker, a TV host, and, and a great follow, as I mentioned, at Caulfield Tim on, uh, I guess we call it X now, formerly known as Twitter. Um, when you're talking about knowing what you're taking, you know, I did, got pregnant, through IVF, uh, took folic acid, took took my prenatal vitamins as per my physician's direction. And, and yet there are some people who would call themselves an expert and tell you this tincture or that, you know, type of mushroom, or, you know, if you eat this much of that type of green, but like, where, where do we find the line? Is there a resource beyond filling up your inbox? <laughs> Uh, on social media for, for people to check what they're taking and how those things might interact with one another or the medications they might be on. That's dangerous too. Well, you know, I, I think that you go with the advice that you get from your, your physician when you're talking about, about taking supplements. And, and there are good resources, you know, Health Canada, the National Health Service in, uh, in the UK has, has some nice resources on, on supplements. Uh, but, you know, I, I think you keep that skeptical hat on whenever you're seeing a supplement attached to, you know, a, a, a broad claim, like, a like promise. Yeah. Yeah, a promise that, that demands clinical um, evidence. Now, it is interesting to note in, in, that Health Canada very recently over the past year has been talking about uh, upping the regulatory standards for, for um supplements in Canada and, in fact, requiring the reporting of adverse events around supplements uh, in Canada. I, you know, I think those are two tremendous moves, and, and we absolutely we absolutely need, I think, tighter regulation of this entire industry. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Tim Caulfield is my guest. Timothy Caulfield, Professor Timothy Caulfield, with apologies to your mother. I often lean into my <laughs> Tim when she, she called you Timothy for a reason. But Professor Caulfield, uh, you are my touchstone when it comes to trying to identify where uh, science is is used as a tool to uh, hide behind the curtain and become somewhat a wizard of Oz. A lot of that going on uh, in the anti-aging lane. We've talked about Goop many times. You can love Gwyneth Paltrow. You can love her movies, and you can have issue with some of the things being sold um, on this multi-hundred of millions of dollars worth of platform where promises are made about items that simply do not deliver on the promise. What are we looking at in that 
minefield of anti-aging. Where are the trigger, triggers to what we should be looking for as a tell? I, I actually am finding the whole longevity anti-aging industry a, a really fascinating trend. And, and I wonder if you agree with me here <laughs> that, yeah. that it seems like it's the new wellness movement, right? It, yep. it's, it's this kind of high-tech version of, of the wellness movement we saw, you know, a decade ago, right? And lots of sciencey terminology, microbiome, stem cell, genomics, all used to give this veneer of legitimacy to their to their products. And and the other interesting thing that we're seeing is, you know, people who have affiliations with institutions like, you know, Harvard and, and, and Stanford are, are also selling products, um, even though there isn't good clinical data to support the work that they're doing. But when they say it, right, and, and they use this kind of terminolo- terminology, it can seem very, very real. Legit. Uh, yeah, it can, see, it can seem legit. But, but the reality is, the reality is, um, you know, beyond, beyond the, those real basic things that we know we should all do, exercise, eat well, sleep, try to maintain a healthy weight, don't drink too much alcohol, surround yourself with people you love, don't smoke, right? Um, right. Beyond those things, uh, there isn't a lot of evidence to support the claims that they're making. And the other interesting thing, Jody, is they often package you know, that list I just described as a longevity hack when the reality is, you know, we've known this for a very long time and you, and you don't need to go to a longevity guru to, to get the facts right. on, on the value of, of those actions. It's interesting, too, how people just, and, and, and I can admit to being one of the people, so I'm not looking down on others because I have said, what can I do to improve my sleep and is it that supplement over there or you know there's there's got to be a pill in this aisle of all of these pills to help me and what ended up ultimately helping me was reducing my sugar intake i started sleeping like a teenager and you know where i got that piece of information my doctor Right. You know, I'm not a good sleeper either, Jody. That's my, <laughs> that's my, you know, of, of the list I just gave. That's the one. And, and for me, uh, it was winding down, right? You know, I really need to, to learn to wind, wind down at night. And that's not a, a high tech, you know, body hack. <laughs> that's that's no. listening to the, to the science. So, you know, things that people should watch for are, you know, once again, are, are these extreme claims. Look for those sciencey phrases that aren't attached to a good body of evidence. Are they referring to something that's just a, a mouse study? You know, a mouse study very, very, very rarely translates into something that has clinical application for humans. Are they referring to just one study instead of, you know, the body of evidence? Sometimes there's a small, exciting study that makes it sound like something's going to have a, a big impact on our our, our health, our, our longevity, but we really need to wait for that body of evidence to evolve because history tells us, you know, one promising study rarely translates into something that has profound clinical implications. And if it did, you wouldn't have to go searching for it in the in the deepest, darkest corners of a, of a health, health shop. Um, I've only got like one minute to go here, but what are the most egregious promises? Are there like, you know, if, if all of a sudden hair loss could be completely turned around and dudes would be able to, you know, say goodbye to male pattern balding, that, if that was discovered somewhere, it would be big news, right? That's not yeah. happening. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's one of the tests. Look, if, if this worked, if we really could make you live to 180 years, We'd know. <laughs> We'd yeah. know. It wouldn't be Alex Jones. It wouldn't be some influencer on TikTok. 
you know, we would know. Humans, humans are complex. We live in a complex environment. It's hard to do this research well. Uh, science is hard and slow. You know, watch the science evolve and, and stick to the science-informed basics. And if somebody's telling you something's true, do your due diligence and try and find it from another source, right? That's also, multi-sourcing is a big lost art, it seems, in today's social media world. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I get it. You know, it's a, we live in a really frantic information environment. It's hard to pause, right, and, and yeah. take that moment to double check. But that's always solid advice. Timothy Caulfield, always a pleasure to chat with you, my friend. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Jody.